0: ladies and gentlemen welcome to histories of the unexpected the show in which we demonstrate that everything simply everything you can possibly think of has its own history like jelly elephants and play Mm. we've done elephants haven't we we haven't done play play would be no play
1: would be excellent
0: yes i'd also like lots of i'd also like to do roads
1: roads have we done walls Ever. Yeah, we've done walls. We've done, we walls. Have done walls. We've written about walls. I think we should do anyway. Roads. Oh, we could do apes, capes, and jolly japes, drapes, grapes, and scrapes. Any of those tickle your fancy? <laughs> scrapes, scrapes. Yes. <laughs> My daughter scraped herself very nastily in an accident at the weekend. Uh, ended up in A and E. Uh, the I really feel for the NHS at the moment. It is under enormous strain. Waiting hmm. times were just, you know, incredible. Um, yeah. Please sort the NHS out, whoever is in is
0: in charge. But
1: for the moment, ooh, before we ooh, take we on can that do
0: waiting, let me just waiting. come in. We can do ooh. the history of waiting. That's a oh, really good oh, idea. Oh. Let's do the history of waiting. It's all to do with architecture and corridors. Actually, there's a uh, there's um, something to do with waiting rooms. The architecture of waiting rooms in the 19th century. Very ooh, interesting. Sam Willis. <laughs> it, it is also anyway.
1: It's also about the court of Henry VIII and waiting <laughs> to go in and see uh, the chief minister. Um, Uh, Mm. Thomas Cromwell. Ooh, I think think we've got an idea bubbling (laughs) up. But for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew that the history of old age is in fact all about being rude about old people and gendering of the muff via Hogarth's 1746 etching A Taste of High Life, or Percy Roberts' Comfort for an Old Maid. It's also about intergenerational oral history projects between school pupils and residents in care homes. It's about the history of isolation and loneliness, and it's about the photograph and William Turner's famous painting, The Fighting Temeraire, who knew. Or, who knew that the history of robots, which we've done very recently indeed, is in fact all about AI and the rise of chat, GPT, popular culture, science fiction and imagining good and bad machines. Think C-3PO, R2-D2 and Metal Mickey, all of whom are goody robots. It's also all about the Brayson head automaton and the late medieval polymath Roger Bacon via Robert Greene's Elizabethan play Friar Bacon and Friar Bungay circa 1590, as well as being all about the Industrial Revolution, dancing bears, and mechanical automata in Victorian times. Who knew? <laughs>
0: Very good stuff. I really enjoyed that episode, actually. Um, let me say of my fellow presenter, if history were a deck chair, yes, one of those good old-fashioned stripey ones, this man would face it to the south, lower himself in, make himself comfy and watch the present go by from the comfort of the stripey past. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello.
1: And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a stripes-related historian, the man would be as neatly manicured as the most perfect English lawn in summer, in historical terms. He'd be the centre court at Wimbledon early in the morning, glistening with dew. He'd be the turf at Wembley, neatly presented before the FA Cup final. He ain't no scraggy-dob-corrupted flea-pit of a patch of grass. No cerebob. He's the real deal. The Rolls-Royce of the mowing world and the most perfect striped lawn of the past yes you've guessed it it's the famous historical adventurer dr sam willis <laughs> you can see where i'm going with this can't you right um, at the hugely very
0: enjoyable i hadn't really thought about um striped gardens and striped lawns in uh, architecture that's a, that's I, a very I'm, good idea
1: I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about striped gardens at the moment because as some of you may know we have a puppy who is almost six months now and our we didn't have a a pristine lawn but I had a sort of like I could make it stripy uh, the lawn is, the is now <laughs> decimated
0: <laughs> yeah with, with round spots where all the grass is gone oh dried.
1: god yes dreadful 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 yes. dreadful
0: Reminding you, James, of the history of your lawn and how wonderful it used to be. But exactly. Now currently exactly. Is not. <laughs> Lawns past,
1: <passed>. summers past. <laughs> yeah.
0: Very good, uh, guys. We're doing the history of stripes. Um, very excited to do the history of stripes. I think it's quite an interesting topic, and um, thought about it in all sorts of interesting ways. I actually began. Um, so our last episode was on the history of fish, uh, in which I talked about a, a chap who stole. Um, From the Natural History Museum in Tring, loads of exceptionally rare and some extinct uh, bird's feathers... Um, And whilst I was researching that, he was was stealing the bird's feathers to make uh, uh, flies to catch fish with, for fly fishing. explain that? Um, Whilst I was doing that research, I I, uh, had a wonderful time reading about uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who is a contemporary of Darwin and um, helped develop the theory of evolution. Um, And also... Um, a Rothschild who's a really interesting person. This is all to do with the Natural History Museum at Tring, where the collection of all these birds' feathers were, was actually once a private museum of of Lion Walter, the second Baron Rothschild. Um, And the family gave the museum and its contents to the nation in 1937. Now, um, this uh, Baron Rothschild was a very interesting character, huge collections of animals. And one of the things he did was um, he bred... Uh, hybrids between zebras and horses, and they're called zebroids, and you actually get different types of them. You get zorses and zonkeys, which I quite like the idea of. Um, There's a very famous photograph of Rothschild with a horse, a a um, a, a, a beautiful carriage. Um, But instead of it being um, driven by a team of horses, it's being driven by a team of his uh, zebroids. So they basically look like stripy horses. Um, So my immediate thought, James, was about the history of stripes in animals, our understanding of them, how the zebra got his stripes um, and the ways that we could uh, we could look at that.
1: Right, it sounds, like fact, a, yeah, it sounds like an Aesop's, <laughs> Aesop's Fables, How the Zebra it Got does. His Stripes. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, how, yeah absolutely. it does. There is,
0: a, there is a kid's book called How the Zebra Got His Stripes, yes. and it's not the actual expression. So one of the interesting things about this is that we've only really started to work out in recent years how the zebra actually got his stripes. So um, oh. Alfred Russell Wallace and Darwin had a think about it. They um, uh, exchanged uh, letters about it. They had various ideas. They thought it might be something to do with camouflage or in some way just disrupting a predatory attack, something to do with thermal regulation. It might have a social function. All of these um, very interesting ideas. Um, but it was only uh, less than 10 years ago that scientists um, did a little experiment and they mapped the geographic distribution of, of a variety of different species of zebras according to all sorts of um interesting things like environmental uh, variables, woodland areas um, so gives you a sense of what, what might act as camouflage like the range of large predators temperatures um, and also the geographic distribution of biting flies and rather to their surprise they discovered that the only thing that matched the geographical distribution of zebras was the uh, matching similar geographical distribution of biting flies and then they came back to the U- UK, where there are um, uh, zebras in captivity and they did some experiments with zebras alongside horses studying the way that horse flies and these setsy flies, very um, nasty bitey flies, reacted around the different animals and um, what they tended to do was to fly at high speed into the zebras and bounce off them so there was something to do with the way that the flies, the flies can't kind of work out how to land on a zebra but they can work out how to land on a horse. Um, So I just thought that was very interesting and, um, it, it, you know, it, I was surprised that this was not an answer that had been um, reached at some point deeper in history. Um, so, yeah, there we go. Um, I wanted to just start off by talking about uh, stripes in animals and um, the scientific understanding of the reason for stripes in animals. Thank you very much. Oh, um, of course, we have a whole
1: episode on, on zebras, don't we? A whole episode mm. on zebras and I remember us talking about ships in World War II with zebra stripes on them. Oh yes. As sort of ah. you know, to avoid being detected. I went in That's a whole camouflage. Yes, camouflage. I went in a whole different direction and started thinking about stripes and clothing and researched some really interesting stuff. Think about the pinstripe suit or the sort of the breton top uh, sailors uniforms would often have stripes on them uh, prisoners uniforms were striped uh, came across some really um, touching examples of uniform striped uniforms from concentration camps uh, that I'm going to talk a little bit about but one of the ways I got into this was a book by a French historian uh, Michel Pastureau, uh which was published in 2001 and it's a book called The Devil's Cloth which is an extraordinary book. It's very slim and quite zany. Um, He's an art historian, medievalist, and he looks at really the symbolism and the cultural history of striped patterns throughout Western art. And he starts in the medieval period with something of a scandal which is when the Carmelites or the religious order uh, arrive in France from the Holy Land where they've been involved in the Crusades and their the instructions for their order uh, force them to wear striped habits um, and you know this creates utter sort of turmoil uh, in France uh, so much so that This sort of goes on for about 50 years, so much so that the papacy has to intervene and they ban the wearing of you know striped uh habits. However, elsewhere we see the continuation of striped uniforms, uh, and the the, the sort of presence of stripes, uh, in heraldic imagery. Uh, aristocratic um individuals, their servants are often dressed up in, in striped guard, so their retainers have a you know whole sort of costumes uh, jigged out in that and what the book is extraordinary because what it looks at is the history of of the stripe um, and identifies these um, what are seen as sort of malevolent stripes or evil stripes Stripes are often associated with people who are on the margins of society so prostitutes um, jugglers. Um, you know slaves you know that are are dressed up and in even in medieval paintings um, the devil is often seen wearing stripes Uh, so there's a sort of malevolent side and if you think about it continued today where do we find stripes and stripes are often dressing up um, convicts, or servants, or slaves—I mean, some of those. You know, I mean, I don't mean today, but I mean that, that sort of continuation from the medieval period onwards. Those are the, some of the forms in which you might see it. Um, you think about the, the the pinstripe suit being worn by, um, you know, Al Capone, and there you've got the stripe being associated with gangsters. There is also a much more positive take on. Uh, the stripe Um, so you know there's a it it transforms from that sort of malevolent evil sort of demonic uh, sort of marking to something that is much more associated with pleasure with leisure with freedom with youth and you can see this you know in a in a range of ways um revolutionary stripes on the u.s flag or the french revolution or on awnings pajamas deck chairs all of those kinds of things um, that it sort of becomes something that is incredibly positive um so it's a it's a really really intriguing book um and also it it led to one of the funniest uh book reviews that i've ever uh read um <laughs> and i I just need to read you this uh it was in the Guardian uh published at the time that it came out uh by uh, a woman called vera rule uh and she writes um There used to be a discreet form of book called a monograph, a scholarly treatise on a single facet of a subject. They had modest titles... Uh, open quotes, some aspects of striped clothing in medieval Paris with a digression on its importance in the French Revolution. I mean, that more or less is what that book is, but then it's got inflated. Uh, And then she continues, and none of the careerist ambitions of a thesis, even a lay reader was very much the wiser after a good one. (laughs) You cannot be that low-key in publishing now. Hence the pumped-up title of Pastoreau's pinstripe-thin work. It should have come with the title in the paragraph above. Subtitle as, as written by a professor of the history of Western symbols who doesn't want to know one end of a loom from the other. (laughs) And so it goes on. And so it goes on. Um that he, um, he doesn't want to accept the reasonable theory that monks were viewed as outrageously wearing Islam's camel or goat-hair caftans, this is the Carmelites, because it is reasonable. Or, as he says, as of other explanations, he disses as textilogical. And she continues, after that word, I really started to enjoy reading Pastoro, who, in his abstraction, is as exquisitely French as a couture catwalk, although without much nous about the construction of rocks or the transmission of modes and so it so it goes on but we can we can we can chart this history of stripes through all kinds of forms of clothing throughout the 19th and 20th century just take the the history of the Breton stripe you know now we think of this as something worn by Jean-Paul Gaultier any of you who remember your euro trash um on channel four which is one of my favorite um uh, shows to watch with Jean-Paul Gaultier and Antoine de Kant, uh, Gaultier was always wearing a sort of you know Breton style top
0: there um can you just describe it so it's a white a white long sleeve top with with a number of horizontal exactly exactly blue blue
1: or you have whatever color but traditionally blue and this this basically comes from the 18th century navy and stripes were very much the sort of popular choice for seamen you see them on trousers you see them on um on, on jackets also uh you see them on socks So I even came across in the National Maritime Collection a pair of silk stockings with blue stripes on them worn by Nelson when he was wounded at Tenerife, uh, which you'll probably know all about, Sam Willis.
0: Mm -mm. Actually, I haven't come across those ones. I thought you were going to talk about the socks he was wearing, the stockings he was wearing at the Battle of Trafalgar, but not the ones at Tenerife. They sound very interesting
1: There are those as well, uh, which Mm. are really interesting, and they have... They have markings on them for laundry uh, as well, um, mm. and uh, they are heavily blood-stained. Uh, the blood mm. is probably that not of Nelson, but of Nelson's secretary Scott. Um, uh, so the curatorial markings, um, uh, you know, tell me. So I'm going to stop there with um, with my stripy clothing um, and pass the baton uh, to your good self.
0: Yeah, I found a um, an interesting. Uh, linked to stripy clothing actually i've got here a wonderful um a digital reproduction of a drawing showing italian high fashion around 1500 ad and there are some uh a gentleman here in the most phenomenally striped short trousers kind of hose so there's a chap here with a green cloak on and his uh leggings uh, one is completely plain gray and the other one is gold and red vertical stripes uh, another chap here he's got a blue uh, one leg t- highly blue the other leg is red and white stripes um, there's another chap here who has both legs are completely striped green white red green gold and pink um, really really fascinating stuff and another chap here in a um a tunic cloak uh, which is, this matches this this half and half thing. So one side is a kind of brownie gold and the other side is a bit like the Breton um, sailor's shirt you were talking about, James. So it was white with blue horizontal stripes. Um, and there's been some argument about how and why this kind of style of uh, luxury and exuberance in Italian fashion started to appear at the end of the 15th century beginning of the 16th century and it has been argued that it's actually to do with the Black Death um, which I thought was quite interesting I'm not sure it's true but I thought it was quite interesting so um, the theory goes is that because the Black Death eliminates almost half of the European population um, you have a lot of people the survivors who come into great wealth um, because of their inheriting um, multiple inheritances all at the same time, or certainly within a short period of time, and it's been argued that this led to a an explosion in, in tailoring, and it's particularly in Italian luxury. So people, more people, could now afford luxury goods. They wanted to be able to um, demonstrate that they had the money. They were looking for a very uh, like extremely attention grabbing clothing, uh, which was on the rise. I thought it was fascinating um, and it's also linked with Italian architecture I think because in the 13th century the third 12 uh, beginning of the 12 uh, 1215 or so you have um, the creation of some really magical enormous cathedrals primarily in northern Italy I'm thinking Siena or Vieto places like this they build striped cathedrals they literally build striped cathedrals and um, if you want to have a look at one then just google Siena cathedral it's an astonishing building so it was um, built between 1215 and 1263 and both the exterior and the interior are built out of um, white marble but also a kind of greenish black marble and they're built in um, alternating stripes and those stripes are are so cleverly done. They draw the eye to specific features of the building on the inside. They frame other features. It makes it a a kind of a more uh, um, attention-grabbing type of building. So if you go into somewhere like exeter cathedral so that was wasn't uh, it was built roughly the same period very very plain and very solemn there's lots of carvings yes but there's nothing so ostentatious as these stripes so on the one hand you've got um a, a little later some people dressing in stripes but that's after two or three hundred years of the italians building in stripes so if you're interested in that then do go and look at the um go and look at some churches in northern italy um if you want to look at a British version of it Um, you can't really find them in churches but you can find them in military buildings Um, I would go to Carnarfon Castle in Wales to start off with very interesting that's got striped walls Um, there's been all sorts of arguments about why Um, so this was Edward I building it it was it has been argued that it was built because it was inspired by people returning from the Crusades and the walls in terms of the towers as well and the stripes, very much match those of Constantinople. So there's a there's a previously existing Roman tradition of building in stripes as well. Um, now, usually with the Romans, you'd have courses of brick alongside plain courses of stone, found to be very effective against uh, in, in earthquakes. Actually, um, now. This was uh, believed to be a way of saving money so you don't have to build the entire thing out of brick. But then they also found some amazing Roman walls which were were faced in these stripes so they were not structurally integral to the actual building. So you've got walls which are made out of concrete or made out of rubble but then they are um, like almost tiled, they, they're faced in these stripes. So uh, it is very much believed to have been a design feature as well so there we go um, uh, a little bit of striped clothing in Italy in the 1500s going back to striped buildings in Italy in the 1300s going back to striped castles in England in the 1300s and then from there to the world of ancient Rome and their wonderful stripy walls
1: Mm. I've been to Siena. Siena is a stunning cathedral, a stunning city. Um, I want to take us back to clothing and to what I was talking about, the the Holocaust and the uniforms that people would have worn uh, when they were incarcerated in the concentration camps. And the striped uniforms that they wore, probably people know most about nowadays from that book The Boy in the Striped Pajamas by John Boyne and the, the subsequent film. But I had quite a bit of reading around this, including a really interesting article by a woman who was who worked at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, DC and worked with the uniforms. And she'd worked with over two hundred and fifty uniforms and the article was absolutely fascinating because this is not somebody who's coming at it simply from a historical point of view but this is somebody who is expert in clothing and is able to tell you a history of the kinds of uh, clothes that people wore from the fabric the materiality the stuff that they're made of themselves and one of the striking things uh, that came out of this article was that the this clothing was actually quite well made I mean she describes it as very well made um, they 're made within the camps themselves they 're made of of you know of quite uh, good material they 're well stitched, and the stripes are on both sides, so they go they go all the way all the way through. There is some discussion here about what is the significance of stripes. And stripes were, as we heard earlier on, stripes were often associated with the you know, sort of a demonic side, negative side um, of life. And she says that actually this comes from... Uh, a mistranslation of the bible so there's a passage in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 19 which talks about the forbidden mixtures and so it talks about the forbidden mixture of linen and wool in the same fabric Um, and there is a sort of misinterpretation of this that probably is some of the you know leads to some of this sort of banning of stripes um, by the pope pope Boniface the eighth um in the 13th century um pro- probably also the fact that prisoners were told to were were made to wear stripe uniforms is so that they can stand out in the natural environment so we talked about camouflage earlier on in relation to ships covered in zebra stripes here it makes it much harder for people to to um to us to escape much more uh, easily seen on the on the horizon, um, these striped uniforms would have been given to 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 men these sort of striped suits they'd have been given a sort of range of other uh, things to wear as well um, and famously, there are various symbols that they would have stitched on um, so Jews famously wore two yellow triangles which formed the star of David red triangles were worn by political prisoners brown triangles by romany peoples um, uh, black triangles were for uh, asocials uh, pink triangles for homosexuals uh, and purple triangles for jehovah's witnesses they'd have worn um, wooden uh, wooden or leather clogs on their feet they didn't have socks um, which meant that their their feet were in terrible terrible uh, condition what's also interesting is the uniforms the striped uniforms were also of different quality Um, and this is because there are various hierarchies within the camps and so people who were seen as of you know superior status within the camps uh, were given better uniforms to wear and we learn about this really from primo levy's autobiographical work around auschwitz and he talks about these these hierarchies um, and he mentions a group of prisoners which he terms prominence and these were the people who had been selected by the ss guards not from among generally not from among the the ranks of the of jewish peoples but from criminals and they were given those kind of basic practical tasks within uh, the camps that basically keep it running. So about, you know, distribution of food, and those kinds of things. And they need to be uh, identified within the camp because of, you know, through the kinds of uniforms that they wear. So they were, you know, they get the sort of better striped uh, sort of jackets. Now, one fascinating example of an individual um, striped suit that I came across was in the Western Australian Museum, uh, and it's a concentration camp uniform, and it belongs to a Polish political prisoner, uh, a man called Stefan Gebski, um, and there's a fascinating history of him that accompanies this. It ends up in Australia uh, and ends up in this museum. Uh, what what I think is what is intriguing about this and so often with the kinds of objects that we talk about in the podcast Sam it's that they are they're a way of telling not only a life history but also a much broader uh, global history, a really significant history so this this concentration camp uniform is, it enables us to tell Stefan Gebsky's own personal history but also against the backdrop of of what was happening in in Europe through the Holocaust and his later life and his emigration uh, and acceptance as a refugee in Australia and then the the uniform ends up in this museum as a museum object to be interpreted to tell the life of him and his story. And so basically he was born in Poland in 1921 to a middle-class Catholic family. Uh, He joins the Polish army in 1936 he um, wants to become a lawyer so we know all of this because you know because he survived and you know there is a an oral history that goes along um, with his with his uniform Um, he is then at the age of 18 captured uh, when the German army Um, invade Uh, he's arrested imprisoned in 1941 he's sent to Auschwitz as a political prisoner Um, he then miraculously escapes there Um, there is this tremendous thunderstorm and all the chaos that that causes he manages to escape and then he's picked up by the Polish underground Um, and you know, for a little while he he's, he's free and he's working with them um, he, the family then try to move um, out of where they are to try and get into Switzerland try and get into England um, but they find themselves in Germany and are recaptured by the Gestapo and he then finds himself once again imprisoned and he goes through a series of uh, concentration camps including the massive camp uh, Sachsenhausen uh, which is liberated well, I've sorry I've
0: been there oh you have been there oh yeah 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 it's, uh, it's, it's one of the kind of lesser known Sachsenhausen ones of uh, um, uh, 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 concentration camps really really interesting so much survives hmm. there
1: mm. well he manages he manages to he's liberated from there uh, and he takes this uniform with him it has a red triangle in the top left-hand side which basically signifies that he's a political prisoner it's also got his number on it so rather than being uh, an individual he, he's number uh, 138577 and what's interesting is that he keeps this with him uh partly because when he comes out of the concentration camp he they have almost nothing and so this is something that he that he wears they, he meets a, a young Polish woman called Helena. They have a son, George. Um, and they finally are accepted into Australia as refugees in 1949. Uh, and they arrive in Fremantle, uh, which is a place you were talking about the other day, the world's best fish and chips. They arrive there on the 2nd of March, 1950. And they keep this very much as a... As the curatorial notes to this say, as a matter of necessity, you know, because they don't have any other things, their their child, their infant is ill. They trade a lot of the things that they get from the from the Red Cross, the parcels, um, in order to you know, to pay for sort of medical supplies for their son. Um, and so he actually arrives in Australia wearing this, and then it becomes something that's deeply significant to him. It is one of the only things that he has that is a reminder of the horrors that he's been through in the concentration camps and decides not to sort of get rid of it. I mean, some people, I imagine, you know, wanted to burn them and purge that kind of memory. But for him, it becomes something that is so closely associated with that. is It is an object of memory for him. So much so that he, he leaves it to a museum. Uh, and in 1972, in fact, the year I was born... He approaches the Western Australian Museum. He offers them the the uniform and they they take it on, uh, look after it, conserve it, preserve it and interpret it in this very important way. Um,
0: Amazing stuff. Yes. Amazing stuff. Um, Really interesting, the the, the whole history of of striped clothing, particularly in relation to prisoners and prisoners' clothing uh, in particular, and how that changed from stripes to to kind of big, bold, block colours like orange now. Anyway, guys, and that is our sketch of our history of stripes. There is uh, so much more we could also do with stripes. I became very interested in um, striped insignia and medals as well, uh, which is something I will talk about another time. But that's it for now. Well, I was... I was also going to talk about the lawnmower, uh, Edwin Beard Budding's
1: lawnmower. Uh, There's a reason why we have such stripy lawns, and it is the invention of the lawnmower, uh, which is extraordinary. Hmm. But maybe we should come back and talk about lawns.
0: Yeah, it's coming to spring. People will be out in the gardens. I think that's a really good idea. I think we should talk about lawns and stripes. So we'll be back
1: with that for you.
0: We'll be back with that, guys. Okay. uh, well, thank you all very much for listening. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. It's amazing.
1: And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at James Daybell. The podcast is at UnexpectedPod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook. So come and please do check us out there. Become our friends. We have a... All singing, all dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see our entire back catalogue and also purchase, especially for Easter um, or for Valentine's Day, uh, signed copies of our books. Uh, If you want to support what we're doing to change the way in which people think about the past, head over to patreon.com and our page, historiesoftheunexpected.com. But meanwhile, uh, be well out there. Hopefully it's getting warmer where you are or you're in the depths of winter. (laughs)